Amen. Well, welcome guys tonight to the Grove Church here under the tent. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here at the Grove. Um, we just got back from Sarasota this past weekend, and I learned all about the circus, which I didn't realize was a big deal in Sarasota, and learned all about the Big Top Circus. So there's a part of me that I feel like here we are under the Big Top, the truly the greatest show on earth, you could say, as Jesus is working to bring his gospel to all his people. But anyway, I, I digress from the circus analogies. But still, it's great to see you here this evening. We are continuing our study through the book of Philippians. One of the things that marks us as a church is we are expository teachers. Now, what that means is the majority of time, we're just walking word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. And we are in the middle of our study through the book of Philippians. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Philippi while he was in a Roman prison. Paul penned this letter to them. He helped start the church about 10 years previously, and he's now writing to them to encourage them. Got to correct a couple things happening, but overall to just encourage them. This is one of the most joy-filled letters that we see Paul write. So there's just encouragement after encouragement, and we're now here at the end of chapter 3 where Paul kind of reaches the climax of this chapter as he just beautifully lays out what it means to be a Christian. We saw that in verses 1 through 11, chapter 3. Then what it looks like to live as a Christian, we saw that in verses 12 through 16, and tonight to see what hope do we have as Christians? How then, where are we supposed to be looking as we run this race? And Paul then shifts our eyes forward as he finishes in this beautiful climax here in this chapter. So we'll be in chapter 3, verses 17 through 21 this evening. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. So we'll be in chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Paul has just got done telling this church that they are to run a race. They are to look for the prize. They're to forget what's behind and strain towards what is ahead. And he now is going to shift and we'll see and transition on what it is we're supposed to be looking at and the things that might slow us down as we run this race. So we'll read verses 17 through 21 and then we will dive in. Paul writes this. He says, Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So as Paul writes this, I want us to ask two questions tonight. I think Paul's asking the church in Philippi two questions. I think by extension, Paul is asking us two questions tonight. What are those questions? Well, I think they're these two. The questions are, who are you imitating? And second, where are you focusing? Who are you imitating? And where are you focusing? Those will be our two points 
this evening. If you're a note taker, you'll see those are the blanks. This isn't a test. You're not going to be graded afterwards. If you miss a blank, it is okay. Um, the, the most important thing is that we see and know Jesus tonight. But first, who are you imitating? Point question number one. We see this in verse 17. Paul's just got done telling them on how they are to run this race. In verse 17, he tells them, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Do you hear what Paul is talking about here? Paul is telling them, join in imitating me. Look to me and imitate the life that I live. Not only me, but also pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Paul says, look around you at other people in your church. Find other examples in your life and pay careful attention you hear how, how careful Paul is telling them to live? He's telling them, don't just kind of glance at them. Pay careful attention to the ones that you see as examples in your life. To those around you who are living according to the example that you have in us. Paul is saying to not just know true things about Jesus or to know true things about who God is. Paul is also concerned with how they are living. And Paul is saying, look around and find people who are living this out who are walking the walk and not just talking the talk and pay careful attention to them. Imitate them. Look at their example. Friends, God is very concerned about what you believe. We see this throughout the scriptures. We hear true things about who God is, what he has done for us, and how we are to think and what we are to believe. God's very concerned about what you believe. But understand that he is also concerned with how you live. If there is a disconnect between what it is that we claim to believe and how it is we are living, then friends, we are not truly believing in who God is. And so Paul is here saying, look and find examples. Get yourself around them and make sure that your life is matching up with what it is you claim to believe. Right? This is sometimes a temptation for people who love the Bible and love doctrine and love theology. Sometimes we can become so immersed in knowing true things, it, be, it can begin to separate from how we love our spouses or how we work in our jobs or how it is we think about our money or how we relate to our children, how we treat our neighbors. Paul is saying, goodness, no true things, but make sure it's changing your life as well. I mean, just look at the book of Philippians. Paul's concerned with both. Goodness, it's awesome to be able to explain the perseverance of the saints and the sovereignty of God and all things as he carries us to the completion of our salvation, as Paul writes beautifully in Philippians 1.6. But notice in the next verse, in verse 7, Paul talks about the affection that he has for these, for these brothers and sisters. Because you hold brothers and sisters in this church within your heart like Paul did in verse 7. Are your relationships marked by affection or just by acquaintance? It's great if you can articulate the intricacies of the hypostatic union of the God-man Jesus Christ as Paul lays out in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. But do you have that same mind to serve others that drove God to be able to become man in the first place? Are others more important than yourself? Or just look and see. It's important to be able to understand the nuanced definitions 
and differences of monergism and synergism as in regards to our salvation and sanctification. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, 13 through 14. But notice in verse 15, are we working out that theology in our lives by not grumbling and by not complaining? Paul gets immensely practical in our lives. So we both must know true things, but also live true things. Are we more marked by critique and negativity or a quarrelsome spirit? Friends, God doesn't want you to just be good theologians. Demons are excellent theologians. They know true things about who God is, and they shudder, the book of James writes. Goodness, I would say they know more true things about who God is than we do. So what's the difference? The difference isn't just knowledge of God. It's that demons don't then trust in him. They don't treasure him. They don't want to then leave behind their life to be able to follow him. They hate who he is. So we have to make sure that we do not just fall into an intellectual Christianity, but that it plays out in our life as well. God doesn't just want you to know true things. He wants you to love true things and to obey true things. So one of the ways in which God designs this is he says, so to do that, find people who stir that up in you and get around them, imitate them, pay careful attention to them. You know those people, you have a conversation with them and you walk away wanting to love Jesus more. You know those people? What Paul is saying in Philippians 3 is pay careful attention to them. Live according to their example. Imitate them as they imitate Jesus. Find ways to get around them. Ask them to come over to your house. Take them out to coffee. Talk to them after church. Find out what small group they're in and get in their small group. Find people that make you want to love Jesus more and get yourself around them. Pay careful attention to them. Paul's so concerned about this because he knows there are two opposing views that are pulling on every single person in this world. And his concern here isn't just who they are imitating, but also which one of those views they are focusing on. So Paul begins here and asks, who are you imitating? Who do you find yourself around? Who are you paying careful attention to? Do you find yourself around other people who stir you up? But now he turns and is going to ask the question, where are you focusing? So first, where, who are you imitating? But now, where are you focusing? Paul turns here and is asking, are you focusing on earthly things or on heavenly things? On earthly things or on heavenly things? Well, what's he mean by this? We see in verse 18, he writes, he says, I've often told you, I now say again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at 19, he says, their end is destruction. So the people that he's talking about here, there's a sober warning that Paul gives. Paul says these people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's the language he uses to describe them. And the end of that life is one of destruction, one of separation from God. Having to stand before Him in judgment of our own rebellion against Him. We have rebelled against Him and stand as enemies. And the end of that life is destruction. This is what the Bible refers to as hell, being separated from God for all of eternity, having to pay for the judgment of our sin. Paul is saying, for these people, their end is 
destruction. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, listen, I don't really know about this Jesus, but this feels a little extreme. I feel fine. I look around, I'm not a terrible person. Surely my end isn't destruction if I don't trust in Jesus. Enemies of the cross of Christ? No, no, I'm not necessarily an enemy of the cross of Christ. I'm just kind of, it's just not really relevant for me. I don't really feel the need to be able to press into a decision to know or to trust him. And I understand that emotion. But friends, that's no different than someone walking into a doctor's office after the doctor tells them, that they've been diagnosed with cancer and the response being, well, I feel fine though. But we are not the best diagnosticians. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're going to say it is. Diagnosticians of our own condition. We have to step back rather than just how we feel, what our perspective is, to open up the Bible and say, is this in fact true? Is there a God who created all of this? Are we separated from him? Did he actually rise from the dead? And is he telling me now that unless I trust in him, I will have to stand before him and have to face my own sin and my end is destruction regardless of how I feel? That's the questions that we have to get to. And notice the emotion that Paul has as he writes this. Did you hear it in verse 18? He says, I've often told you, and now I say again with tears. Paul is moved to weeping as he thinks about these people who are running to hell and running to their destruction. And Paul isn't just denouncing them, he's weeping over them. He does this elsewhere in Romans 9, and this just follows after the example of Jesus in Luke 19 as he weeps over Jerusalem. Friends, are we moved to that kind of emotion as we think about people whose end is destruction? Or do we just like to throw out truth and win arguments? When we think about people who are running as enemies of the cross of Christ, are we moved like the apostle is? One of the things I see about Paul is that Paul's really concerned about truth. Right? You read his letters. Sometimes they're hard to understand. That's what Peter said, the apostle Peter, not just me. I'm grateful for Peter. He's a moron like me, apparently. He has a hard time understanding Paul. So Paul's concerned about truth. But so many of Paul's letters are stained with his tears. Paul cared about these people. Paul was moved to tears, and it drove him to want to share this good news that people would then believe and have faith and life in Jesus. Are we moved to the same way? And so that's the end that we see where they are going. The end is destruction. But what does the path look like? Well, Paul describes it. He says their end is destruction, and their God is their stomach. Now, Paul isn't just talking about food here. He's talking about much more than that. He's talking about the sense of self-indulgence or pleasure. Anything that would say, you know what, my own appetites are what are most important to me. I just want to seek what makes me happy. What it is that brings me pleasure? This self-indulgence. He isn't writing against any particular sin, but rather the underlying temptation to all of self-indulgence. In one Christian, that might be a temptation towards sexual sin. In another, it might be greed. In another, it might be gossiping. And what's important here is not what, just what Paul says, but what he doesn't say. As he leaves this broad term here to describe the tendency we have to want to cater to ourselves and our own appetite. Paul warns the church in Philippi and the church here at the Grove that this is a downward path that leads to destruction. 
But not only is there a sense to want to then be able to give in to self-indulgence, whatever it might be, then it turns to want to justify that very act. So not only do we see that their God is their stomach, but then next, their glory is in their shame. Paul says not only then do they begin to run and just focus on what it is that they find pleasure in, then there's a turning to justify it and glory in the thing that God calls evil. The thing which is shameful, they glory in. And they call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. And listen, this is happening left and right in our culture today. As those who stand outside of the church who don't believe in Jesus are taking the things that are evil and beginning to hold them up and praise them as good. And so I can't go into the list here because we'll take up the rest of our time, but it's worth noting that we see it popping up more and more, and it's worth noting this isn't the first time it's happened. This has been happening since the very beginning of mankind. Happened 2,000 years ago. That our culture is just catching up, it seems to be, to the culture of mankind even in Philippi 2,000 years ago. It's tempting to think that there's never been a period in history that's had more of an upside-down view of morality than the culture we live in. And that's just simply not true. We see in this text, it's the natural trajectory of the enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's a downward path that leads to destruction. And so how does Paul sum it up then? He says they then are giving their gods their stomach, they glory in their shame. And he sums it up with this phrase, their focus is on earthly things. Paul says, summed up, they're just looking around this earth and they are focused on that. Their focus isn't on heaven, anything that's coming. It's simply looking around and going, let me find joy, satisfaction, pleasure, everything that I want to try to find, I'll find it in this world. And it's worth noting those aren't all bad things. Some of them are good things, but they're still earthly things. And the danger is is when we we look to good things and we try to make them God things. We look to them to try to fulfill in our lives what only Jesus can. I see this happen often, right? I grew up playing um, baseball all through elementary school, middle school, and I saw often parents who tried to live their lives through their children. Anybody else seen this? They come down hard on their children anytime they fail because they wanted to find fulfillment through their children's lives and the ways that their lives never could match up to. And they began to be overbearing and burdening on their children, yelling at them when they fail, always pushing them to be harder and trying to find joy in the fulfillment of their children's lives. And listen, children are beautiful. I love children. We have two of them. They are wonderful. They are beautiful, but they are also beautiful little sinners created in the image of God, but people that, that, that will rebel against authority. And they are wonderful and they are great children, but they make terrible gods. And I promise you, they will let you down if you look to them to try to fulfill in your life what only God can. The same can be true about our jobs, our careers, our money, social standing, political power, whatever it may be. If we set our minds on earthly things, it will always fall short. It may eventually lead to self-indulgence. It may lead to justification and glory in our shame. And friends, it might lead to destruction. Paul is giving us a warning here, and he's giving the Philippians a warning to make sure their focus is not on earthly things, but for them to fight to focus on something else, on something greater. But what? 
where does Paul tell them their focus should be? He tells them to imitate and examples those around them. Pay careful attention to them. He warns them of what happens of setting your mind on earthly things and the enemies of the cross of Christ leading to destruction. So what does Paul tell them to look towards? What is Paul telling us to look towards? Where should our focus be? We see our focus should be on heavenly things. We see this in verses 20 and 21. So again, Paul concluded their perspective in verse 19 is that they are focused on earthly things. So what's the counter to that? Right? If, you're, if you're reading it like me, I would think that Paul would say, they focus on earthly things, but we focus on heavenly things. They glory in their stomachs, but we glory in our Savior. And you would think that Paul would say, they do these things, but we do these things. But notice, as Paul shifts, the counter to their focus on earthly things isn't what it is that we do as Christians, but who we are as Christians. And I just, I hope I can convey this. This is a fundamental difference between New Testament Christianity and what is just religious morality. What religious morality will say is that what it means to be a Christian is, hey, just be better. Just stop doing some of those things. Start doing some of these things. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Open the door for people as they're walking through. Say thank you. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Be kind. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a little bit more than the average person. Friends, that is religious morality. And it is empty of the power and the joy of a Christian relationship. And so notice what Paul doesn't say is, hey, they focus on earthly things, but we try really hard to be good. Paul doesn't even focus on what it is they are to do, but on their identity and who they are. He says they focus on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Paul says it's not about fundamentally what we do. Certainly it is that. Paul has this letter filled with things to do. But that's not the fundamental basis of it. Paul says the foundation of it isn't what you can do for God, but what God has now made you. He has come while you are an enemy of a cross of Christ, and He has taken hold of you. And He's now brought you into His kingdom, made you and adopted you as a child of the King, and you now are a citizen of heaven. That is what Christianity is. And because those things are true, we then live for Him, but not trying to earn anything out of worship and gratitude and appreciation for what God has done for us. Friends, there is a vast difference between those two things. And as Paul is encouraging the church here to live for Jesus, he goes back to who they are and reminds them who they are and tells them our citizenship is in heaven. And so it's worth unpacking that phrase because that's a phrase I think that we often neglect particularly here in the American church. So if you're a highlighter, underliner, boxer, whatever you may do with your Bible, underline, highlight, box those words. Our citizenship is in heaven. If we, I'm convinced, if we as a church apply those five words more into our lives, then this church would look drastically different. We would begin to live drastically different. It would begin to play everything else out in our lives if we knew that to be true of us. 
right? Notice he begins our citizenship. He has that idea. This isn't the first time he brought it up, right? He mentioned it earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, that we are to just do one thing, to live as citizens of heaven. Paul is wanting to remind them that their citizenship, their home, isn't here in this earth. That their home is in heaven. That's where it lies. We're just foreigners and pilgrims here. Right? It's like the passage in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. The author writes this. Of all of the kind of going through the hall of faith of chapter 11 in Hebrews. Just this person lived with faith. This person lived with faith. This person lived with faith. Summed up in verses 13 to 16, described it this way. It says that these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place. That is a heavenly one. Underneath the faith of these incredible stories and individuals in the Bible was this understanding. Our citizenship is in heaven. I'm a foreigner here. I'm a temporary resident here. I'm here in a hotel as I know that I'm headed home, and I will live like that is true. I will make it clear that I am seeking a homeland. Friends, does your life make it clear that you are seeking a homeland? Does it clear for people that look at your life that your home is in heaven? Or people were to look at your life, would they go, oh boy, it really seems like they're working hard to make their home here as comfortable as they can be, surrounding themselves, looking at earthly things, or do we make choices that make it clear that we are foreigners, that we are temporary residents? Right? Again, I went to Sarasota this weekend, and had I gone over there and bought a house and began to move into a neighborhood while I still lived here, I probably would have had a number of difficult conversations with my wife as she goes, what in the world are you doing? I'm like, well, I just like this place. She's like, well, are you moving here? I was like, no, my home's in Claremont. But I'm just going to buy a house here. Even though I'm going to be leaving soon, I'm still going to put all of my money into this place. We would have a number of difficult conversations because that would be an idiotic thing to do. As we're staying there in the hotel and I begin to unpack my luggage and begin to rearrange the decorations, maybe bust out a wall and kind of renovate a little bit, bring in some shiplap to help make it a little bit chip in Joanna. She's like, what are you doing? We're going to have to pay for this. I'm like, no, this is my home now. I love this place. She'd look at me and go, Caleb, we are temporary residents here. This is a hotel. You're going to have to pay for that. I'm not paying for it. You're paying for it. That's a dumb thing to do. But friends, I wonder how many of us as Christians live like we are renovating the hotels of our lives here? Working to make this as comfortable as we can, focusing on earthly things, or do we know that we are foreigners here, that we're temporary residents, that we will check out and go home? Do we make it clear that that is true? Friends, your citizenship is not in this world it is in heaven. Your citizenship is not even primarily in this country. It is in heaven. 
And that should be the foundational identity of who we are as Christians. We can be proud to be Americans. It doesn't mean that you uh, are opposed to your country, but it means that it's... Can you guys hear me? Nope, nothing. There we go, check. Am I doing something, Chris? All right, there. Check, check. Okay. Well, it's just about to talk about the election, and the microphone goes off. So I guess there that is. Friends, our primary residency and citizenship is in heaven, not in America. And that should inform how we live our lives, and it should inform how we walk through an election season. And again, I worry that as a church, sometimes we put an unnecessary emphasis and we flip that and begin to live primarily as citizens of this country or even primarily citizens of a certain party over and above our citizenship that is in heaven. It doesn't mean we don't care about politics. It doesn't mean we don't talk about it. We live in a democratic republic and we have the opportunity to, Lord willing, be able to help bring into godly justice policies, but making sure that our perspective is this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that means that we as a church can be filled with Democrats and Republicans united around the gospel because our citizenship lies not in this country but in heaven. And may that be true of us. And so could that, those five words get pressed into who we are, that our citizenship is in heaven. Second word I want to highlight is that word is. Did you notice that? Did you hear it? Paul does not say your citizenship will be in heaven. No, Paul says your citizenship is in heaven. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Again, it doesn't mean that you just live a better life. It means that right now, if you have followed Jesus, your passport is secure and your name is written in the kingdom of the Lamb and in his book and your citizenship is there right now. That is your home. And it's not just being a little bit better version of another person. It means that our citizenship is in heaven. Granted the status of this new kingdom, it is yours. He is yours and you are his. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so while we wait here, we have to live like we were there. While we wait here to get into that kingdom, for our citizenship to be made true, we then live like we were already there. We look at how Jesus says we're supposed to live in his kingdom, and we start to do that now. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. You are a kingdom citizen and acting as an ambassador for your king here on foreign soil. And that's where we are headed. We're headed to a better country, a better kingdom, and a better home. But the great joy of heaven is not where we will be, but who will be there. As Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, look at now what he writes makes him eagerly excited and anticipated. He says that our citizenship is in heaven in verse 20. He says, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there. So Paul knows what's coming in this kingdom. 
the end of all injustice, the end of sin, the end of death and disease, everything turned upside down. We will then be brought into our home. But Paul says the thing that he is waiting for is not what the king will bring with him, but primarily waiting for the king himself. Paul is eagerly waiting for a savior. He's eagerly waiting for a person. And so we look to him. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is the greatest joy that we see in heaven is that Jesus will be there. Friends, if we had everything else that heaven offered, golden streets and huge mansions and all of our friends there for all of eternity, disease taken away, death taken away, but Jesus was not there, friends, that would be hell because the king wasn't there. The great prize and treasure of Christianity wouldn't be there with us. And Paul is eagerly waiting for that Savior. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, put it this way. He says that genuine spirituality cannot live long without an attitude that is homesick for heaven. Do we live like that is true? Genuine spirituality cannot live long without an attitude that is homesick for heaven that lives with eternity's values in view, that eagerly waits for Jesus' return and anticipates that day when Christ himself will subject everything to himself and transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Do we live longing for that day, waiting for Jesus to return? And I love the name that Paul uses here. He says, we eagerly wait for a Savior from there. And he uses the full name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord. Paul says that here is our King. He is the Lord over everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. That He created all things and in Him all things are held together and sustained. Every single atom of the universe is held together by the power of this King. That's who Jesus is. He is the Lord, but also He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is a man who had a name, and that name was Jesus. Yes, he is the King and the Lord of all, but also a man who lived in this broken world as well, and who walked through pain and suffering and death and disease and felt the brokenness of this world and sympathizes then with us. He is not a God who is removed and distant. He is a God who's come down and tasted the sadness of this earth. He is Jesus. He is the Lord. He is Jesus, and he is the Christ. This was an official title as the Messiah, the Greek word for Messiah, that he was the one to come and fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies to redeem and save his people. That Jesus, the king of the world, then came and stepped into that creation and is now working to fulfill every promise to redeem his people, save them from their sins, and reverse the curse once and for all. This is who we wait for, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And this is the thing that makes Paul eagerly anticipated, right? Like a child on Christmas Eve, right? That's the, 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 the image that comes to my mind, eagerly waiting. It's hard to go to sleep, partly maybe because you're hopped up on sugar from all the candy you've eaten on Christmas Eve, but then the turkey kicks in, you finally go to sleep. But then when you wake up, the child's so excited for what is coming on Christmas Day. Friends, do we live 
looking and longing for the return of Jesus with that kind of anticipation, with that kind of longing, with that kind of excitement? Or do we instead maybe say, wait, wait, Emmanuel. I've got some things I want to do in my life first. My life's kind of going good for me right now. Ready for heaven, if you could just hold off maybe like 20 years, I've got some things I want to check off in my life first. Or do we look to him, longing for the day to be today? Come, Lord Jesus, come today. Before this service is over, would you return? Because what will he do when he returns? Well, Paul tells us in verse 21, when he returns, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. Paul says this humble condition that we're in, this broken condition that our bodies are in, it's wasting away. He talks about elsewhere in another letter. Right? We, we feel this to some degree. I'm beginning to feel it now as I'm aging and getting older, right? I'm into my now 30s and I sneezed the other day and I woke up sore a little bit. I'm like, this didn't used to happen. My body is beginning to be different. It's harder to get out of bed. My body takes longer to heal. Is wasting away as I'm becoming older, becoming a dad, right? I got so excited this past month because I bought a new lawnmower and a new grill. And I'm like, wow, I'm a dad, like full on. It's official. I guess I just wait for my white tennis shoes to come in and my YMCA basketball membership, and I'm good to go. I guess it's just coming right on the heels of it. But for others, you feel what Paul writes about, this humble condition, as our bodies are wasting away. Eyesight is fading. It's harder to heal from wounds or from things that get broken or bruised. Or maybe we feel the effects of sin through disease, through heart defects, heart disease, childhood cancer, COVID-19, brain tumors, miscarriages. I know there are so many women in our church who have walked through this, and it's something that we often don't talk about, and it is an effect of this brokenness, this humble condition. And we feel the brokenness of this world. We feel that broken condition, whether it's just through general aging or acutely through suffering as we go, this isn't right. This isn't how it was supposed to be. Our bodies are wasting away, and there is this humble condition. So, Paul, it's great that our citizenship is in heaven. That's awesome. But I can feel the brokenness of this world. What does Jesus have to say to that? And Paul says this. This is exactly what Jesus says. He will transform the body of that humble condition, and he will change it into the likeness of his glorious body. That when Jesus resurrected, he then resurrected in glory. All of his wounds were healed. No more sin, no more death, no more decay. And he lived then in eternity with a glorified, perfect body. And Paul says that what Jesus has, every single person who trusts in him will also have. That we will be transformed into that image. That Paul, as he was on the road to Damascus and saw the glorified and resurrected Jesus radiating in glory and perfection, Paul was struck to the ground in awe and in worship. And he says here that we are going to have a body like that. Paul had seen it. 
And Paul says that when he comes, he will transform the humble and broken condition of our bodies into a glorified, perfect condition like his own. We'll be freed from sin. We'll be freed from the effects of sin. And so I know that you may be tired here this evening. You may feel weak. You may be feeling the humble condition of your body as your health deteriorates. But friends, let me offer you this word to press on because you are not alone. Your Savior is coming. And the weakness that you are so aware of will be transformed by that coming king. And that's the hope that we see as he will transform this humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. I was at the funeral of my grandmother not long ago, and at the graveside, the pastor that was there made this comment that I'd never thought before, and I'll never forget since. He said, for every Christian, as he goes to a graveside, he points this out, that as we're laying people into the ground, he says that this is marking the site of a future miracle. We know this will be ground zero of a miracle when Jesus returns. And this humble condition will be transformed in the likeness of his image. How it happens, no idea, but Jesus has promised it to be true. And so there is a a hope that we see here as Jesus comes and promises to do just this, but how can he do it? How in the world can he do this? Well, he does it, Paul says in the end of the verse, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Paul says that here's Jesus and all the power that he has, he will then use that to be able to do what he promised to do. Right? We don't think we have a category for this kind of power. Right? More powerful than Thanos in uh, Infinity War or in Endgame. And not like beginning of the movie Endgame, but like end of the movie Endgame. That kind of power pales in comparison to the power of Jesus. Now there is a meekness that we celebrate within Jesus as he is gentle and lowly and comes to us in our sin to save us. Yes, amen. But I worry that sometimes we lose the image of the power of Jesus as our coming king who will defeat our final enemy. And he comes with all of his power to be able to put an end to our enemy, to death and sin itself. The power that he has to speak a word and calm a storm. The power that he has to think a thought and heal a boy miles away. The power he has to give sight to the blind, to make the lame man walk, to heal the sick, to feed 5,000, to make the leper whole again, to raise people who had died four days ago. The power that kept death itself from being able to contain him as he walked out of his own grave. Friends, what we see in the book of Revelation is that when that king returns, he will use every ounce of that power to overturn the effects of sin and defeat death once and for all. The power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And then then he will come to you and you will see him face to face. And he will use that same power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And he will take it and he will tenderly and powerfully wipe away the final tear from your eye. Friends, this is the hope that you have 
and nothing can take it from you. And whenever we know that to be true, it changes the way that we live our lives here. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And we are eagerly waiting for that king to return because we know what he will bring. But most importantly, we want to be with him. We want to know him. And so while we live here, we will live with an eye on that day. Martin Luther said that his calendar was always focused on two days, this day and that day. And may we live the same looking forward to that day when he will return. And that will transform the way we live our lives. In one area in particular, it will transform the way that we walk through suffering in this world. When we see that this world isn't the end, when we see that this world isn't the last word, that suffering and death and sin and disease are not the last words in your life or in your loved one's lives, but that Jesus has the final word. Yet we walk through it and we feel the brokenness of this world. We feel the pain of this world, but we walk through sorrowful and yet always rejoicing because this hope remains true even in the worst of circumstances. And in fact, God promises to take all of the experiences of our lives and be able to take them and redeem them and turn them for his glory and for our good so that even as we walk through suffering in this world, Paul has a different perspective. Did you hear it earlier in chapter 3? as he wants to have the fellowship of Christ's suffering and to be conformed to his death. Paul says that in my suffering, there's actually a unique relationship I begin to have with Jesus because he suffered. Before Jesus wore a crown, he was crucified on a cross. And friends, for anyone that chooses to follow him, our path will be the same. But we know that we have a Savior who is walking beside us and who's rocked the road that we're walking now. And we know that in our suffering, we then can lean on him and begin to know him in ways that we might not have otherwise. And what I can guarantee you is if you're here today and you've walked through pain, longing for heaven isn't something that I have to preach very hard for you to grasp a hold of. There is an innate longing for us to lift our eyes and look when we feel the brokenness of this world. So I think of one of, my, one of the heroes of my faith, Johnny Erickson Tata, She's lived for a number of years. She's a quadriplegic. So in, when she was about 17 years old, she was hoping to be an Olympic swimmer, Olympic diver. Incredibly talented athlete, but was diving into a lake and didn't realize how shallow it was. And she dove and hit her neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. Lived the rest of her life in a wheelchair. Has been diagnosed with breast cancer a couple times since then as well. Has written extensively on suffering and how God can be in control of all of this and yet allow people to walk through pain and suffering. And she writes this, and I love this perspective of how this understanding changes the way that we walk through this world. She says this, she said, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, uh, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands, and say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. You hear quoting Philippians 3 there. I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we will have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. 
but the weaker that I was in that thing, the harder that I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin. And all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy and his heart for us beyond all that we have ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. And I find it so poignant that finally, at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will do it for me. Friends, this hope of heaven transforms our suffering. We see that it won't last forever. We see that it actually opens our eyes to see Jesus more clearly and to lean into him, to rely on him more fully, to lift our eyes and eagerly wait for the return of a savior and see we share this unique fellowship with him and the hope that we have in his coming again. And to know that before there was the cross, before there was a crown, there was a cross. And we will follow the same path. Friends, there is no version of Christianity that doesn't have a cross in it. But there's also no version of Christianity that doesn't contain hope. And so as we walk through this damaged world, we lean into Jesus. We live for him and his kingdom. We strive to know him and to make him known as we eagerly wait for him. And we see the great treasure of salvation is to know him. The great prize of sanctification is to know him. And the great hope of glory is to know him and to know him perfectly. For us to be his and for him to be ours. And so our song that we will need to sing to our souls over and over and over again is this. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Why? Because Christ is mine forevermore. Friends, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. God, for the truth that our citizenship is not here in this broken and damaged world, but our citizenship is in heaven. God, help us to look and focus on heaven and to eagerly wait for a coming king. God, and while we are running this race to find others to focus and pay careful attention to them, to help us love Jesus and look for his return and not get distracted by the things of this world, but to look to know Jesus and then to know him more. God, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. God, help us to know that this is true of who we are, that our citizenship is in heaven, and help us to eagerly wait for him to return again. And so God, we pray with saints of old, and we pray some of the last words of the scriptures. We pray that you would come. Lord, come and bring your kingdom here on earth, just as it is in heaven. We pray all this in the mighty, powerful, and beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.